Good evening, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again, the China History Podcast. As advertised last episode, I said we're going to go back to ancient times. And in the history of China, the Zhou Dynasty is pretty much as far back as you could reliably go before you begin to get all caught up in the quagmire of oracle bones, myths, and maybes. The three dynasties of China, Xia, Shang, Zhou, offers up an admirable blend of recorded history and fantasy. The legendary Xia dynasty is roughly pegged as having begun around 2000 BCE, 4,000 years ago. There isn't much evidence besides what was gleaned from the Shang and Zhou, with the Xia and so many other aspects of these three dynasties. We're usually left with no other choice but to hang our hat on whatever Sima Qian wrote in the Han Dynasty about Yu the Great and the floods, King Jie and the fall of the Xia, and the rise and fall of the Shang, and about today's story as well. Today's subject, Jiang Ziya. His life straddled that period in the 12th century BCE, when the Shang was on its way out and the Zhou was taking over. Jiang Ziya's dates are questionable. Surprise, surprise. Let's go with 1156 to 1017 BCE. What's his greatest historic claim to fame? Well, he has a few, and we'll look at them all. But perhaps, most of all, he was kind of a indispensable man who arrived on the scene at a most critical hour and helped the Ji family defeat the wicked Shang ruler Zhou Xin, or Di Xin. This story of how the family patriarch Ji Chang and his two sons, Ji Fa and Ji Dan, vanquished this most cruel of ancient kings is, well, in my absolutely worthless opinion, one of the greatest stories from all of Chinese history. And I'll throw in Neolithic history, too. In telling the story of Jiang Ziya, not only is there a little bit of history to chew on, there's a whole other wild and fantastical tale surrounding his life, and the times he was born into. Ji Chang, of course, is the epic hero King Wen, Zhou Wen Wang, the father of the founder of the Zhou dynasty, and his two most famous sons, Ji Fa and Ji Dan, were King Wu and the Duke of Zhou, respectively. During the Ming dynasty, there was a novel that came out called The Investiture of the Gods, the Fengshan Yan Yi. Like Jiang Ziya himself, this novel is more than a few English names for the title. It's also known as The Enfiefment of the Gods. It's one of those works of literature where no one knows for sure who wrote it, but it always gets attributed to a man named Xu Zhonglin, who lived during the first half of the 16th century, Ming Dynasty. This kind of novel is known as a Shenmo novel, a Shenmo Xiaoshuo. In English, these works are usually referred to as gods and demons fiction a very popular genre of literature. And this one, along with Xi Yo Ji, Journey to the West, in particular, is one of the best loved. This kind of writing became all the rage during the Ming Dynasty, and almost 500 years later, I dare say, hasn't gone out of style. The video gaming industry will attest to that. The Enfiefment of the Gods is 100 chapters long, and I've never read it in Chinese, but it's a trip especially if you're familiar with the history of that time in the 12th century BCE. And I didn't know it when I decided on Jiang Ziya as a follow-up topic to Emily Han. I wanted to do a topic from ancient times, and I arbitrarily chose this one off the list. And as I began my research, I discovered 
He's a superstar in the world of Chinese cinema. There's a new animated film out called Jiang Ziya, Legend of Deification. It was all set to hit the screens in January this year, 2020. And then the whole COVID thing happened, and the movie got put on hold. This one's a sequel to the 2019 flick entitled Birth of the Demon Child Neja. It cost $20 million to make and took in almost $750 million at the box office. And that was just in the PRC. My youngest child is 25 years old, so needless to say, I don't stay on top of all the newly released animated films like I used to. So I didn't know about this whole thing. Well, in this episode, we're going to try and stick with the historical Zhang Ziya, unless on his magical powers, which I'm betting the movie will play up more. You know, from this long ago, 3,100 years, it's hard to know with any degree of certainty the actual timeline of events that happened back then. So when we read about things that went down in the Zhou dynasty, especially the Western Zhou, 1046 BCE to 771 BCE, it's hard to tell. You have to take a leap of faith. But we sure do know a lot, thanks to the Zhou Dynasty propensity to write down a lot of important stuff on inorganic substrates like bronze. Now, these ancient people left us a lot of information about what was happening in their day. So let's look at Jiang Ziya and see where he fits into the whole story of the Zhou. I'll also interject here and there with some of the myths and legends from the Feng Shan Yan Yi, the Deification of the Gods. To tell the story of Jiang Ziya is to retell the story of the fall of the Shang Dynasty, which, as I said, a classic from ancient Chinese history. I never get tired of it. And it's also the story of the founding of the state of Qi. You all remember that once powerful state, its capital at Linzi, modern-day Zibo. It initially comprised all of northern Shandong, including Jinan. And to the south of Qi was once Lu, the birthplace of Confucius. And because of these two ancient states from the Zhou dynasty, Shandong province is sometimes called Qi Lu Liangguo, the land of the two states of Qi and Lu. Qi all began with Jiang Ziya. So Jiang Ziya, like a lot of Chinese historical figures, he had a lot of names he's known by. Besides Jiang Ziya, he's known as the Grand Duke of Qi, Qi Taigong, the Grand Duke of Jiang, Jiang Taigong, Grand Duke Wang, Taigong Wang, and Liu Wang, Liu Shang, and I'm sure a few more. His surname was Jiang. His personal name was Shang. For nobles, it was a thing to have both a family surname and a surname of your clan. So he's referred to as both Liu and Jiang. Again, no proof for anything, but it was said that Jiang Ziya was descended from some noble lord who had actually worked alongside Yu the Great to tame the floods. That was quite a claim to fame back then. His early years were unspectacular and unsuccessful, and according to one account, he had been browbeaten by his woman into seeking employment working for the royal house. He worked his way up the ladder, ultimately becoming the king's main military leader. Then, Jiang Ziya, after watching the quality of his leader degrade to an alarming degree, he one day just got up and left. This came following a very dramatic dust-up, and so disgusted had he become at the state of the kingdom, and with Zhou Xin's depravity, and with the king's evil concubine, Da Ji, inflicting pain and torture on innocent victims, just for the hell of it, well, he decided to abandon his post, quit the Shang capital at Yin, 
modern-day Anyang, and he retired, as the novel says, to Kunlun, and though Laozi and Zhuangzi were still way in the future, Jiang Ziya remained on Kunlun, studying the Dao under the main guy, Yuan Shi Tianzun. It's impossible to completely peel away the myths surrounding Jiang Ziya's association with Taoism and the supernatural and all those years he spent living in Kunlun. This isn't the Kunlun Mountains that separate Xinjiang and Tibet that we discussed in that 12-parter recently. In Chinese mythology, Kunlun is sort of like what Mount Olympus might be for the Greeks. It was a land of gods, goddesses, and wild and chimerical animals with all kinds of fantastical powers. Pangu, Nuwa, Fuxi, they were all associated with Kunlun. It's a very important place in Taoism as well, like Mount Penglai in the, in the east of China, where the eight immortals, the Ba Xian, where they dwelled. Kunlun, no one's quite sure where it was, what it was, or who lived there, but it was considered a kind of palace of heaven, and according to what we know, Jiang Ziya spent a lot of time there. It's said, as an apprentice or disciple to Yuan Shi Tianzun, a towering figure in the Taoist religion. You remember, Dao Jiao, the Taoist religion, and Dao Jia, which was the philosophy of Taoism, associated with Lao Tzu, Zhuang Tzu, and others. Two different things, the Taoist folk religion and the way of life of following the Dao. Yuan Shi Tianzun, he was one of the three pure ones, the San Qing, the holy trinity, if you will, of the Taoist religion. He's the creator of heaven and earth, which you know, I guess makes him pretty important. He was sort of like the main administrator in heaven and on earth, the decider, the most supreme of all beings. And in the novel Deification of the Gods, he is the master of Kunlun and resides there, just as Zeus resided on Mount Olympus. And one day, Yuan Shi Tianzun, being all-knowing, foretold what was about to happen down in these earliest core lands of ancient China, along the Yellow River, Henan province, with the epicenter in the city of Anyang. After all these years living on Kunlun and studying under Yuan Shi Tianzun, the master instructed his disciple Jiang Ziya to head to where all the action is about to go down, and he tells him his destiny to put an end to the Shang and their crazy king, and to assist in the founding of the Zhou and mind you, Jiang Ziya is already 72 at this time. He's no spring chicken. But he had been selected for this mission because of the role he had once had serving the Shang court for two decades as, well, essentially head of the whole Shang military. So he was now back in the real world, so to speak, and he had to somehow hook up with Ji Chang, who we know went on to become King Wen of Zhou. And according to the legend... Jiang Ziya waded into the Wei River, the largest tributary of the Yellow River, and using a fishing pole with no hook or bait, he waited patiently, day after day, for the one person he considered a benevolent ruler to come along. Well, you know how these stories go. Diviners had told the future King Wen, quote, While hunting on the north bank of the Wei River, you will get a great catch. It will not be in the form of a dragon, nor a tiger or great bear. According to the signs, you will find a duke or marquis there, whom heaven has sent to be your teacher. If employed as your assistant, you will flourish 
and the benefits will extend to three generations of Zhou kings, end quote. And sure enough, whilst Zhang Ziya, waiting for this one true and worthy hero to come along, well, who chanced to hear Jiang Ziya's song of lamentation over the state of the Shang dynasty and of the worthy royal house who would replace them? This is the great moment where Ji Chang, the future King Wen, meets Jiang Ziya on the banks of the Wei River. This is another one of those great moments in Chinese history, like when Liu Bei met Zhuge Liang. This Moment is often alluded to and recited in epic poems and stories, and most notably in the book, Feng Shan Ye Yi, Deification of the Gods. King Wen was instantly impressed with Jiang Ziya's insight and wisdom concerning the current state of affairs at the Shang capital at Yin, and the two began to discuss the many evil deeds of the wicked and cruel Shang king, Zhou Xin. And these conversations they had where Jiang Ziya details his strategy about how to put an end to the Shang and replace them with the Zhou, were discussed in minute detail. And this dialogue was immortalized in the book called The Six Secret Strategic Teachings, the Taigong Liu Tao. This military treatise is the first of the so-called Wu Jing Qi Shu, the seven military classics of which Sunzi's Art of War is included, and they were all canonized more than a thousand years later during the northern Song dynasty. And in these six secret teachings, evolved the game plan for how to take down this Shang dynasty, again written in the form of a dialogue between Jiang Ziya and Ji Chang. The future King Wen brought Jiang Ziya to his palace and made him his chief minister, and this became the start of a beautiful friendship. You know, if you go to the National Palace Museum in Taipei, you could see the famous painting, Wei Bing Chui Diao Tu, which depicts the moment when Ji Chang had his fateful meeting with Jiang Ziya on the banks of the River Wei. By this time, Ji Chang had already been released from his incarceration by Zhou Xin, and he had already witnessed some of the cruelty happening within the walls of the Shang Palace at Yin. And in his spare time, he figured out the 64 hexagrams, too. But Ji Chang, this early great Chinese hero, he died before he could witness the downfall of Zhou Xin in 1046 BCE at the fateful Battle of Muye, just outside the capital of Yin, Anyang, northern Henan province, the part where the Yellow River flowed, the central core of ancient Chinese civilization. He was later honored as King Wen after his son, Ji Fa, or King Wu, after he emerged victorious in the end. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. 
And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. I know most of you have heard it all before in previous CHP episodes, CHP 15 and 16, I think. But just in case you never heard the story or need a refresher, let me climb into my hot air balloon and give you a quick overview encapsulation of this truly great story from Chinese history. Man, a tea house storyteller's favorite for thousands of years. And though the headliners of this legend are King Wu, the Duke of Zhou, and of course, King Zhou Xin of Shang and his ghoulish lover, Daji, well, keep in mind that it was really Jiang Ziya, the military strategist and former Shang military leader, who worked with the Ji family to facilitate their ultimate victory. And in doing so, he had a massive impact on the direction of Chinese history. The Feng Shun Yan Yi, the deification of the gods, this is basically the whole story. How the Shang fell and how the Zhou emerged on top, with a few embellishments for your reading pleasure. The Shang dynasty is the first Chinese dynasty where archaeological evidence exists, all discovered in the ruins of Yin and 19th, early 20th century, that attested to the dynasty's existence and confirmed them as the earliest Huaxia Chinese civilization, who left written records behind. Best guesses vary as far as the exact dates, but 1600 to 1046 BCE is usually accepted. After five good centuries, along came the final Shang King Zhou. He is the brutal antagonist in the story. But as far as his early years went, oh, Sima Qian had nothing but good things to say about him in the records of the Grand Historian. But one day, King Zhou, while at the Niuwa Temple, said something sexual and degrading in front of this holiest of all goddesses, wife of Fu Xi, for crying out loud. And Niuwa, well, let's just say she didn't appreciate what King Zhou said or how he was acting in her temple. So to take him down a few pegs, and I guess you could say put his Shang dynasty out of business, this goddess of so many things, Niuwa, she sent a fox spirit to bewitch Zhou Xin. In Chinese myths, well, these Hu Li Jing or Jiu Wei Jing are favorite characters. These were fox spirits that, well, they could disguise themselves as beautiful women, and in one of their forms, they had nine tails. This Vixen spirit motif. Well, it didn't go out of style until into modern times, I wager. That's who Daji was, one of these Jiu Wei Jing. And did King Zhou ever fall head over heels in love with her? And so entirely had she bewitched this king, he went from being this good leader to a depraved scoundrel willing to flush his country down the toilet just for the sake of pleasing Daji. Deification of the Gods, Chapter 17. Everything is recorded in all its gory and agonizing splendor. 
the torture devices, the depravity of the acts she would commit and make the king commit, the bronze toaster, the snake pit, the wine pool and meat forest. Only the sickest minds could think up such devices as these. After King Joe had his own uncle, the venerable Beacon, killed in a gruesome fashion, well... As I indicated already, that was when Jiang Ziya threw in the towel and abandoned his high rank in the Shang hierarchy. And now, after all those years serving King Zhou of Shang and retiring to Kunlun to study the Dao, he is now teamed up with Ji Fa, the future King Wu, and King Wu's brother, Ji Dan, the future Duke of Zhou. Together, they used all their strengths and wiles to attack the capital while King Zhou was out east fighting the Dongyi, the so-called eastern barbarians who were indigenous to that part of Shandong, and at Muye, 1046 BCE, the fateful year, the Shang army, led by King Zhou himself, went down in a decisive defeat against the Zhou army, led by King Wu and Jiang Ziya, and 1046 BCE is generally accepted as the start of the Zhou dynasty. 790 years it lasted before Qin Shi Huang walked on the stage of history and became China's first emperor in 221 BCE. The Zhou was the longest lasting in Chinese history, but there's a couple caveats and a lot of fine print that goes with that claim. Now the movie, Deification of the Gods, the reason it gets that name is because after the Ji family and their royal house of Zhou had vanquished the undeserving Shang dynasty... They had the authority, now that this epic battle was over, to take stock on both sides, the victors and the losers, and determine whose deeds were such that they were worthy of deification. For example, Bi Gan, the uncle of Zhou Xin, and a man revered and respected by Jiang Ziya, after all the good advice and loyalty he had shown his nephew in his efforts to stare him away from Daji's powers, he gets his heart ripped out. So he got deified and went on to become one of the most famous of all gods in Chinese mythology. He became the Taishan, the god of wealth, or one of the versions of the god of wealth story. And when it came time to deify these fallen heroes of Zhou and the defeated Shang, King Wu appointed Jiang Ziya to make this call. And many of the gods, like the god of wealth, came from this time in the mid-11th century BCE. He canonized 365 in all who became deities in Chinese mythology. And these were the gods who the people called on in good times and bad who, well, in addition to their own local gods, protected them, advised them, and warned them of disaster or good times ahead. They were not the same as the Taoist and Buddhist gods or celestial gods, these deified heroes were once mortal human beings who became gods. These were the ones who were the most popular folk heroes and the most relatable to the people over the millennia. Well, Jiang Ziya didn't live happily ever after that. After the Zhou dynasty got established, not long after, a terrible thing happened. King Wu died. 1043 BCE. That resulted in a massive political crisis. And once again, Jiang Ziya had to delay his retirement and had to come to the assistance of King Wu's brother, Ji Dan, the Duke of Zhou, 
who himself had come to the aid of young King Cheng and served as his regent until the young son of King Wu could come into his majority. Until then, the Duke of Zhou held the reins of power in the capital at Haoqing, near modern-day Xi'an. Some say this venerable duke served, some say he usurped. Was King Cheng really too young to be king, or was this a power grab by the Duke of Zhou? Nobody got it on video. At the time of King Wu's passing, there were three of the Duke of Zhou's brothers, plus someone named Wu Geng, who ruled the eastern part of the Zhou domains. Wu Geng was the son of the defeated king, Zhou Xin, and he was a bone King Wu had thrown to Shang loyalists out in those parts, of which there were still quite a few. And he believed giving Zhou Xin's prince some role out there would keep them quiet. But after King Wu up and died so suddenly and unexpectedly, well, these three brothers and Wu Geng, eh, they weren't so sure they liked the way their brother Ji Dan, the Duke of Zhou, how he went and grabbed all the power for himself without even asking them. Well, this all led to a succession crisis known as the Rebellion of the Three Guards, the San Jian Zhi Luan, 1042 to 1039 BCE western Shandong, and northern Jiangsu. These three brothers of the Duke of Zhou were the so-called Three Guards. And Jiang Ziya, along with the forces loyal to Zhou Gong, the Duke of Zhou, once again is credited with handing the rebels a complete and total defeat, further enhancing his reputation as a military strategist and general, not to mention a BFF to the Zhou royal family. And one of the main Upshots of this rebellion of the three guards was that the Duke of Zhou instituted the so-called feudal or fengjian system that called for all of the lands under Zhou control to be divvied up amongst all Zhou loyalists. Those who were family controlled all the lands surrounding the capital at Haoqing. And beyond these core lands, when they ran out of family members, loyalists were enfiefed there and given all kinds of titles and privileges. Then, of course, much later on in the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, beginning around 771 BCE, their loyalty to the Zhou royal house starts to come into question and is a name only. And all these aristocrats ruling their small and not-so-small patches of land start to knock each other off until there's only one man left standing. So Jiang Ziya, we remember him for his timely service to Kings Wen and Wu and the Duke of Zhou, and for putting down a very potent rebellion very early in the life of the dynasty, when there was no king on the throne. And for his next act in life, Jiang Ziya was sent out to pasture to these still rather new lands, where the Dongyi once roamed and were now incorporated into what was already a very highly developed Chinese civilization. These lands given to Jiang Ziya as his to do as he wished in northern Shandong became the state of Qi. And besides all the titles he held as the first head of Qi state, Jiang Ziya also became known as the father of Qi culture. And he's revered today in the city of Linzi, where they consider him a favorite son even though he didn't come from there originally. Qi culture was advanced further in the 7th century BCE under Duke Huan and his great minister Guan Chong. And people from other parts of China would visit Qi, 
and see how they did things there. Their architecture, ways of laying out a city, the emerging art and literature. Just as the Silk Road would become a conduit linking distant cultures, within China, people would travel the country and bring back to their city, town, or village all the new stuff they saw elsewhere. And layer by layer, everything was already starting to develop nicely. Confucius eh, was only a century or two away. And right here also, the Duke of Zhou, along with Jiang Ziya, introduced the idea of the Tianming, the Mandate of Heaven, for the sake of justifying the benevolence and legitimacy of the Zhou. The previous dynasty had to be pointed to as worthy of being overthrown and replaced. And for that reason, we take this whole notion of a wicked and evil king causing so much suffering to the people and point to all his faults and excesses and then go on to say that this was heaven's will. Made total sense. Gets repeated in the Qin, the Han, and it keeps on going. The same was said of the Qing by the late 19th century. Everyone said they had clearly lost the Tianming, the mandate of heaven. So the state of Qi that would one day become so wealthy and full of might and serve as a model for all other states in their sponsorship of scholars, art, and literature, the Jixia Academy, the Jixia Xuegong, that was in the Qi capital of Linzi, modern-day Zibo, and it was established well, centuries after Jiang Ziya passed from this earth, but he had instilled this spirit of culture and learning in his own time. And Jiang Ziya's family ruled Qi until they were replaced by a different family in 379 BCE. So Jiang Ziya, if you follow Chinese cinema, especially animated films, well, you know all about him. If not, remember that name next time you ever find yourself thinking about those dramatic years when the Shang was falling and the Zhou was rising. And during this Zhou dynasty... All the system software of Chinese culture for the coming centuries was put in place, and it's been adapting ever since. And we remember Jiang Ziya as one of the early heroes of this age. During the Tang and Song dynasties, Jiang Ziya was particularly venerated, and temples in his honor were scattered across the land. And after a time in the doghouse in the early Ming, he made a comeback mid-dynasty and was once again venerated as one of the patriarchs of military strategy. And Jiang Ziya was as much a military sage as Confucius was a literary sage. He's on the same level as the great sage, just a different category. And posthumously, and in the annals of history, he's remembered, in English at least, as the great Duke of Qi, the founder of this great and influential state during the Eastern Zhou, they were the last ones standing in the way of Qin Shi Huang's final conquest. At the end of the Warring States period in the 3rd century BCE, it all came down to seven states. And after King Yingzheng led the Qin army to victory over Qi in 221 BCE, that was the beginning of imperial Chinese history. Goodbye to those Bronze Age dynasties. And in popular mass culture, Jiang Ziya was already an icon known throughout the world of manga, video games, TV shows, movies, novels, and whenever discussing the, the supernatural. In Chinese folk religion, he's a well-known figure. Many believe it wasn't only his skills as a 
military strategist that came in handy. It was Jiang Ziya's magical powers that he used to win the celestial gods over to the side of the House of Zhou. There's also the book attributed to Xu Zhonglin, Deification of the Gods. I have to check with John Zhu and see if he has that one queued up at all for production. He's definitely going to have to put that explicit label on that episode 17 with all those gruesome descriptions of Dachi's famous torture devices in action. He's still not finished with the uh, Water Margin podcast yet. Three Kingdoms podcast, done deal. You could binge on that one from start to finish. John Jew, ladies and gentlemen, Three Kingdoms podcast and the Water Margin podcast. And now with this new movie, Jiang Ziya, Legend of Deification, coming out officially on Guoqingjie, October 1st, from Beijing Unlight Pictures and distributed here in the USA by Wellgo USA Entertainment. Well, shares in Jiang Ziya are going to skyrocket, probably even higher than they were following the Battle of Muye 3,066 years ago. It's going to be showing here in SoCal, the ads sell, say, October 1st, so I'm not sure I'm ready for a movie theater yet, but given that the story is based on one of the great slices of ancient Chinese history, I'm sure it will do quite well. You know, there are two different Jiang Ziyas, as I think I indicated at the outset. There's the one from history, who Sima Qian and other ancient historians speak about, and there's the Jiang Ziya from Xu Zhonglin's novel, Deification of the Gods. Lots of Taoism, fantasy, all laced with the supernatural. I found the novel on Google Books where you can go check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes along with some Amazon links to uh, English translations. And that, my fine friends, is going to be that for this time. Consider supporting me through my Patreon page, patreon.com, three bucks a month, or five, or ten, or whatever you want. Lots of stories from my distant past, early access to CHP episodes, ready access to your humble narrator. If you prefer just a one-time donation, I maintain a PayPal donation center just for that very reason. PayPal.me slash China History Podcast. All links to everything at the show notes. Okay, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California. As always, beseeching you to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.